Hello and welcome back to Platform, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald, and I'm a journalist working at the intersection of media and activism. You can find my most recent work over at www.platformenterprise.com, where you can also subscribe to get my newsletter and this podcast delivered to your inbox every week. On this week's show is author, journalist, and financial hacker, Brett Scott. Brett infiltrated the finance world as a derivatives broker in 2008 and exposed the dark arts of the industry in his 2012 book, The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. The book serves as a guide to activists and organizations who want to improve the financial sector. He has since led initiatives around the world to discover and develop new monetary systems. And on the show today, we discuss what is money? What are some of the misconceptions around monetary systems? What constitutes an alternative economy and alternative currency? And why is cash vital to a democratic society? This is an eye-opening conversation with a real expert in the field, and I'm thrilled to present it to you all today. If you enjoy it as much as I know you will, please leave a five-star review on your podcast listening app thing, and do subscribe over at www.platformenterprise.com, where you can also find the link to watch this episode in full. All right, enjoy. Brett, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So could you give a bit of background uh, for people that may not be familiar with your work? A bit of background. Uh, well, I guess for like 10 years or so, I've been working on uh, different aspects of financial campaigning and monetary. I don't know if that's the best word, but sort of exploring financial systems and monetary systems and finding ways to um kind of mess with those or reform those or kind of like uh make interventions into those systems but i i started out actually i mean i worked in the financial sector so i have some experience in like high finance as it were mm. like kind of some of the more like abstract parts of finance and then sort of over the years moved into a whole bunch of different um kind of fields from there so I have quite a, like a wide range of things I do but like actually nowadays people are like the stuff I'm doing now is more focused on monetary systems I, I put out a book in 2013 called the heretics guide to global finance which was much more like was broader it was about like things like hedge funds and investment banks so it was all, it was all of the, the kind of like flashy parts of finance whereas mm -hmm. the stuff I'm doing now is much more kind of like it would probably have once been considered a more like boring part of finance to look at, but there is actually quite a lot of interest in monetary systems right now. So um, it's becoming sexier, oh. as it were. That's always yeah, a but blast. I do lots of, lots of different lots of different things around like exploring financial systems and monetary systems and alternative economics and alternative economy projects. Could you give an example of what a monetary system is? Um, well, for example, the Eurozone or the Euro okay. <laughs> is a monetary system, a small time bank in a little village town in Scotland could be a very small scale monetary system. Mm -hmm. Um, Bitcoin is not a monetary system. Why not? Um, so um, there are various, yeah, there's various like, uh, yeah, th this question has like, 
is a very divisive question, but I'm, I've got a very specific way of looking at monetary systems. So I feel quite certain when I say things like that. But for many people, when they hear me say things like that, they think it's kind of like, yeah, it, it provokes a lot of emotions, should I say. Um, so when I say something like Bitcoin's not a monetary system, it makes a lot of people angry. But I'm, I have no problem saying that because in my world, after spending, you know, several years um, exploring such systems, I'm pretty certain about those types of um, those claims. Um, but we can go deeper into these issues. <laughs> you wish. Well, I think uh, there's, there's lots of there's, there's there's like mainstream monetary systems. Yeah. There's like the de facto dominant monetary system, which is like national currencies, which are, you know, conglomerations of states and banks that operate together to form currency networks. And there's an international system for linking those all together. And then there are people who attempt to build these alternative breakaway systems. Right. And so a lot of the alternative breakaway systems do not actually currently operate as money, but they have the aspiration to become money in future. Um, so there's a lot of like politics around the naming of these systems or, or what, whether they operate as money or not and so on. How would you define money? Well, historically, when people are approaching a question like that, they go to this terrible uh, paradigm, which you find comes out of economics, which is this functional definitions of money. They use these, they basically do like a tick box, ex tick, tick box ex exercise where they say, if you, go, if you go to an economics textbook and you look at how they define money, and this is basically any economics textbook, mm -hmm. right? They have this like thing that they define it by, a, like they say it is a thing that fulfills certain functions. So if it can fulfill function A, B, and C, then it is money. All right. Um, and historically, they say store of value, uh, medium of exchange, unit of account. They use these like unbearably vague terms <laughs> to define these things. Um, and the best, the best like analogy to think about just before, like, is it, it, it's a little bit like de defining a chair. For example, let's take an ordinary object around us, a chair. And rather than describing what it actually is, which is a thing made of, uh, for example, a wooden plank placed upon vertical legs <laughs> with a vertical backrest, rather than describing the structure of it and then saying, you can then sit on this thing, mm -hmm. they'll say a chair is anything that you are able to sit on, all right? This is like how the functions of money paradigm works. It's like a tick box exercise. Um, so what I, often what I'm trying to do is, is rather than describing these vague functions, I try to describe the internal structure of monetary systems, all right? So, I, so when I'm doing that, if you're looking at like a modern monetary system, it is actually like a multi-tiered network structure, all right? And it has a, this gets pretty like, complex to describe this structure actually let's go for it um it <laughs> if i was describing it it's like a three-dimensional structure uh, <laughs> that uh has a vertical component and a horizontal component right but like this is why most people can't see it because it's so difficult to actually see um <laughs> but it is a system of ious issued out by three tiers of issuers notably states, banks, and various other types of institutions that plug into those, 
which are issued down into society and then percolate around um, be, before being sucked back in. Um, but while when, once they are pushed out, they become network access tokens that enable you to access goods and services. All right, that's a very, very crude base level description of a structure of a monetary system. Um, but the most sort of like um, elevator pitch way of saying it is it's, let's just call them network access tokens, which enable you to ac access an interdependent network of people. Now, like all the stuff that I'm saying right now is like way too complex to put onto like, let's say like a television interview. Um, but this is part of, part of the problem that you have in a lot of discussions around money is pr precisely because people cannot see these structures, they will resort to these various forms of mythology and in particular, these extremely vague definitions given by the economic dis discipline. So one of the major projects I've got going right now is to literally try to draw these systems out so people have a visual reference to actually be able to see them, see these systems, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I actually recently read um, Debt, The First 5,000 Years by yeah. David Graeber. So the, the concept of IOUs, thankfully, doesn't go over yeah, my yeah. head because I battled with it when I first read, when I read it on his page. Um, yeah. And I was like, that shook me. I was like, oh my God, that, that's exactly yeah, the, what it uh, is. The, the actual structure of money is really, really fascinating, but it's, it's almost completely unknown to, even to economists, but it, it's unknown mm. to the vast majority of people. Um, and it's actually incredibly amazing when you start to actually see the actual structure. All right. When you go past those bland functional definitions, which just say there's these vague things like unit of, you know, or like store of value, which is like a meaningless statement largely. Mm -hmm. All right. When you actually start to see how the structure works, it is pretty extraordinary. Um, and it's also a lot more nuanced and sophisticated than lots of the critics of these systems make out. All right. So even people who, who claim to be trying to reform the banking sector often have a very crude description of the thing that they're trying to change, which is a little bit like um, if you're imagining, for example, Don Quixote. Do you know the figure of Don Quixote? It's sort of like a romantic, um, uh, for a romantic uh, uh, this, no this novel about this like guy who's he's a knight, but he, he keeps on having delusions of grandeur. He, he's, he's trying to like charge down dragons and ogres and stuff. But he keeps on charging down windmills. He's convinced <laughs> that he's convinced that these are the things that are the enemy, right? And like often when I'm around a lot of like people who are trying to like reform, you know, the fiat money system, they're like, oh, do you know that banks create money? Da, 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 da. They all have all this like angst, right? They, they feel like Don Quixote to me. I'm like, yeah, I understand what you're trying to say. I understand your intuition, but you're charging the wrong thing. You don't really like. You're often r running in the wrong direction. So often, you know, for example, when I'm hanging around cryptocurrency communities, this is rife in cryptocurrency communities. People are convinced that they're charging down the system, but actually they're completely integrated into the system. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, um, this is why being able to start to like actually visualize these systems becomes very useful. Um, albeit I'm aware it's quite hard to verbally convey a complex structure like this. I want to get into the, the, the function of it or the, the functionality of it because um, I, you wrote that structure precedes function and yeah I would argue that function precedes structure because back to your chair example like if you say it, it's something that you can sit on then we can imagine a whole range of things going from a yoga ball to a rock um, and yet it is only <laughs> 
It is only by understanding the functionality of the thing that we can then design the best structure for it, which is where we arrive to a chair. No? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, for example, in economics, they will use this reasoning mm-hmm. um, to describe the origins of money. So if you mention David Graeber's debt, one of the biggest contributions that David, what it's most, one of the things it's most known for is demolishing the barter theory of money. Yeah. All right. The barter theory of money is derived from the functions of money paradigm where they, the sort of economists have said, well, basically they'll, they'll say there is an inherent need for something and that inherent need has brought forth something to come and fulfill it. Okay. Okay. So they start from the assumption that everybody needs to exchange. Hmm. So they'll say something like, so their, their de facto foundation is something like, we always had to find some way to exchange things, and it wasn't it so it wasn't it so inconvenient. The, and that's a kind of like therefore the the requirement for this like function has brought forth this thing to fulfill it. Mm. Okay, whereas a lot of the kind of like um, anthropology type structure thinking and say chartalist thinking of money will actually say, well, actually those things that you think are the functions of money are almost like secondary features that were induced by something else, particularly like political power and like monarchs and different types of people seeking power and systems, which as a secondary side effect creates a system of exchange and capitalism. Mm. Okay. This is why it becomes quite important to sort of, in, in a lot of chartalist thinking, like for example, if, you, if you're in the US right now, there's this movement called Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. MMT is a branch of a historical tradition in money, which is called chartalism which points out the political origins of monetary systems um, and the, the fact that the primary sort of um, driver of monetary systems was states often trying to extract resources and then issuing out these tokens to do that. And those tokens subsequently become used for a secondary purpose of facilitating exchange among the people who happen to end up being forced to use them, mm. okay? Mm. It wasn't brought forth by the desire to help people exchange, which is what economists will try to say, mm-hmm. okay? Um, which is why I would try to say this, this like, and I know this like structure function thing is philosophically murky, right? But it's quite a useful intuition initially to say there is a structure um, which, yeah, I mean, yeah, they don't have to be like placed in complete, opposition to each other it's, it's a kind of a, co- like a you've got to think of them as, as co-evolving rather than necessarily like um one preceding the other mm. uh but yeah <laughs> i'm hoping that makes sense yeah no it does it does i'm just wondering um if there is a way then or if you're in fact if you're working on this or studying this or whatever um to like recode the functions of money so rather than um representing a unit of exchange which i think it's fair to say they do now even though historically that was not the origin um whether is it possible to to record the function as i don't know um the a representation of trust or a representation of respect or you know like i mean alternative money systems try to try to play with this but the the point is is that if you want to have creativity with monetary systems, mm. you really got to grapple with the structure. Let me, let me give you like a, like a very, another metaphor which might help illustrate this. Okay, like, so right now I've got this quite like engineering type mentality. 
I'm like, let's describe the structure, right? It's very like architectural and engineering. But the, 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 the reason why I have that is that if you have that, it then will unlock the ability for creativity to later come. So like, for example, think about a bridge, all right? A bridge is a structure that goes across a river and enables you to walk from one side to the other. Now, if you're using functional descriptions of this thing, you say, hey, it's a thing that enables me to get to the other side of the river, okay? Well, I mean, many things enable you to get to the other side of the river, like a canoe does that, you know, swimming does that. There's various other ways to do that, right? But the, the normal way in the world that we understand something is by looking at both those functional and structural elements. So if a person approaches a bridge, they'll see a structure. They might not perfectly understand exactly how it's engineered, but they basically have a basic intuition of what it is. Mm. And then they say, oh, that's a thing I can use to get across the river, okay? Now, if I'm an engineer of a bridge, I can be like, well, look, at the, the way it works is it does this and it balances the load, et cetera, et cetera. And the person's like, okay, cool. I'll basically get it. Now I'm, feel, I'm going to walk across, okay? <laughs> now, imagine, though, you couldn't see the bridge. Imagine it's invisible, oh, all right? Okay. Okay, and it's like this thing that's, that's it's, it's so large you can't even see it. And you have these like – and somebody refuses to describe the structure – and you have these vague functions, right? Now, try to be creative with that. It's very, very hard to be a creative with that, right? Because, for example, in the case of a bridge, if I go to kids and I say, hey, imagine me some fantastical bridges, you know, like a magical bridge that's held up by like flying unicorns or whatever it is, like they can use the engineering description as, the, as a basic foundation for further creativity, and to actually then explore and be like, well, maybe we could do something else. Maybe we could have a floating pontoon bridge or something. There's different ways you can figure that. But if you don't do that first structural description, you end up in a realm of vagueness where basically anything goes. And I've been in so many of these situations. For example, you go to with artists who love the idea of like making creative like arts currencies and stuff. But because they've got no structural description of money, they basically end up like envisaging completely like fantastical things that have no connection to money whatsoever. And similarly with many of these other types of like, and this goes into the mainstream as well. It's, it's, this is the reason why so many things can masquerade as money without being money. Um, and so like my, my engineering kind of impulse here is not because I'm trying to be pedantic. It's because actually this is the thing you need to do before you can actually start to be creative. Yeah. Okay. And also the, <laughs> the thing I was thinking when I was imagining, um, an invisible bridge and you're on one side and somebody says yeah there's a thing there to help you get across but i'm not going to explain it to you and you can't see it are you going to use it correctly are you even going to dare to use it it means that you can never change it as well um yeah it makes well, it well look the, the, there's a there's a book by christine de san which is called making money she's a a, a um uh she, she was at columbia university professor there which is all about um i mean it's about many things about monetary systems, but it's, it partly addresses this, this thing in economics, the, the refusal to name the monetary system. Mm. And it's almost like there's a whole language around something, but it refuses to name what it's actually speaking about. And if you think about the politics of that, it's, it's really, really intense. It's like, it's like there's like this force field you cannot speak about. All right. And it basically keeps people in this constant state of vagueness about an actual system and there's there's heavy heavy politics to that and you know even these people who are critics of these systems are stuck in that same realm of vagueness um so for example in the bitcoin community they constantly think that they're, they're charging down the like the fiat money system but they're using the exact same structures of vagueness that the economists use mm. 
All right. So um, that's why I'm quite often frustrated by this, <laughs> like passionate about it. Oh, sure. Uh, could you then give an example of one of the things that you're working on in which the, the structure has come first and you're using that to recreate, redefine well, look, the functions? I mean, I mean the, the, the stuff, my, my little rant about structures and things is part of, behind, of my, my newsletter, Altered States of Monetary Consciousness, um, which is about using arts and drawing to actually sort of draw systems that are largely invisible. So imagine the invisible bridge. Mm thing like actually to draw draw this stuff all right and that's a work in progress so like that's that's the project i'm doing um around visualizing monetary systems but the practical side effect of that um i hope is to be able to then help um various groups who are trying to build alternative structures all right because it helps to have this model in the background when you're trying to like figure out what you're gonna how you're gonna um so I have another series, for example, called Unboxing Alternative Currency, where I take alternative currencies and I quote unquote unbox them. You know, I take them apart, and I look, look at look at exactly how they fare on these in these systems, and how on yeah. What I mean, one of the things that comes out is how many of them are so um, struggle to find any language to describe what they're trying to do, and often like kind of like flailing around. Um, you know, you, I can, you can often like sense the intuition of what they're trying to do, but they but they like lack a kind of language to articulate it properly. Um, so my end objective with a lot of the stuff is to be able to help groups that are actually practically trying to build alternatives. But right now it's still in a sort of quite early phase. Okay. But I mean, I'm also doing other stuff. I mean, I'm finishing a book on about, the, about cash and digital money and like, you know, fintech. <laughs> <laughs> Just another project. I've seen that. I saw uh, you wrote in The Guardian quite a few times warning people of this move to a cashless society. Yeah, exactly. Interestingly, like this cash issue is one very practical example of where this failure to see monetary systems comes in. Um, because people, when they're approaching like the cash system, they see these like objects that float in front of them, cash units. And they're, they're like, well, this is basically the same, isn't it, to, to like a digital unit, except, you know, the digital ones like on my phone or something. And this is, this is like when you're just seeing the shallow surface layer of a monetary system, you think that. But like once you can see the structure, you're like, shit, no. Like this is like a serious issue. There's like a massive politics to what happens if the cash system um, uh, starts going down. And like... But the, the public debate is so stunted because people can't really actually see what that system is. Um, so, yeah, my work around cash, which is this new book that I got coming out, is, is at least it's partially centered on that. It's about trying to show people what the actual implications are when you have the physical units of state money are replaced by digital units of bank-issued money. Basically, it's, it's about the transferal of power to the banking sector and the subsequent fusion with the technology sector and the implications that it has, which is huge. Um, I mean, when you put so it like yeah. that, even. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's proper like it's proper like dystopia type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What, what so, it, for example, in, in the cryptocurrency community, they have the right intuition. I don't know if you ever hang around cryptocurrency yeah. people, but they're always obsessed by this issue, even if they're a little bit like misguided in how they often attempt to then resolve it. But they, they have the right intuition, which is that 
the digital money system is probably one of the most uh, powerful forces for dystopia um, in human history. <laughs> right? Which yeah. is why like, there's a lot of like heavy politics with it. What do you see being uh, the, the main dangers then as we increasingly move towards um, uh, digital money? Well, de facto right now, the digital money system is the banking sector. Okay. Uh, so the, the first political element of it is the transferal of power from the state money system in form of cash to the bank money system, right? These are two separate parts of the, of the, of the structure of the, the issuance of money. And, um, I mean, that in itself has political implications, depending on your political position, all right? Like sometimes libertarians, for example, think it's better that the, the banks run the monetary system mm. than like, a, like sort of states and stuff. It gets super complicated. And it's also very ambiguous as whether like central banks are considered to be state institutions or working on behalf of the banking sector, all right? So there's a bunch of ambiguities around this, but the basic in intuition is... Um, the banking sector is gaining ever more power in terms of being able to insert itself in every single interaction in an economy. Okay. So in what's referred to as quote unquote, the cashless society, it's basically a system where you have to root everything via the banking sector. Okay. Um, and that, that immediately raises a bunch of, a bunch of, uh, problems. Um, one is surveillance. Okay. So there's a surveillance and data extraction element. There is, in the mainstream, the thing people talk about the most is the exclusion element, which is the fact that not everyone gets access to the banking sector. Um, but in the mainstream, that's then used to justify um, state intervention to onboard people into the banking sector. Right. All right. So they say, oh, shame. Every people are going to be left behind. We better like get them into the banks. Right. Right, which is like a very neoliberal narrative around yeah. the state should be helping the banking sector to get new customers. Yeah. Okay, and that's how that's how it would be framed in the BBC or wherever you go, right? Um, but that is like a legitimate concern in a sense, but it's partly like not the point. Um, there's also then like um, a whole range of stability questions and stuff when you see your whole entire monetary system starts going onto these online platforms. Um, but now there's a whole bunch of politics that are emerging from that where, and I don't know how deep you want me to go into this, but like, That's there's kind of like a massive Mexican standoff in the, in the, the monetary system right now, where the, the banks and the financial technology companies have undermined the cash system. And this is in turn inducing the states to have to think about whether they should issue their own form of digital money which is a whole new debate that's emerging, but they can't do it because they'll undermine the banking sector if they do it. But if they don't do it, they'll also undermine their own power. the monetary system in various ways. So there's like a whole like crazy thing happening right now in the monetary system, which a lot of people don't know about. Um, and COVID has really accelerated it because a lot of the digital finance companies used it to further demonize the cash system. Anyway, that's like a serious, like it's like a heavy topic. Um, and it does take like quite a while to get used to it. But basically, um, if you want to create large scale systems of like cyberpunk dystopia, the first thing you got to do is digitize the money system. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I had no idea that that was happening. 
what would that mean then? <laughs> what would money look like then if there was like the state issued tokens and the bank issued tokens and what would the relationship be between them and where would all the I just immediately well, with the digital tokens. Yeah. I mean, if they like, okay, because now there's cash and there's digital tokens, but if the states issued yeah. their well, own. The reason, the reason why the states are, the, the banks have been forcing the states to have this, this discussion precisely because the banks have undermined the cash system. Yeah. Okay, that's what it was called, like the war on cash. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that in turn is inducing these states to have this discussion about like, okay, should we be issuing our own digital money? Yeah. But if they do that, people will be like, well, why do I hold the digital money issued by banks? I can just hold the digital money issued by states. Yeah. Okay. So, and that potentially undermines the banking sector. Mm -hmm. And so that's why like a lot of central bankers are like, ah, we shouldn't go there because it'll upset all the people, our banking members and potentially destabilize them. Yeah. But then, then there's a whole geopolitical element to it. Because countries like China are now being saying like, okay, well, we'll, we'll start doing it. Um, and that becomes a geopolitical issue because, for example, in the U.S., like the U.S. dollar, the U.S. gets a lot of power from the fact that the U.S. dollar is used as the reserve currency for global trade. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of trade will route through the U.S. dollar system. Um, but if, for example, like my family's from Zimbabwe, okay? Now, for example... And they use U.S. dollars in Zimbabwe I didn't to know do that. stuff. Okay. okay. But imagine now the Chinese central bank starts saying, oh, we're gonna, we've got this new form of digital uh, yuan you can use. And if you're like a Zimbabwean, you'd be like, well, why am I using like, like trying to get U.S. dollars in cash form from, this, from the States? It's like, I can't find it. We could be using this digital, you know, the, the digital Chinese state money. Yeah. Um, and now this is becoming a kind of like, whole geopolitical question and now that's what's forcing other states to be thinking about it and which could potentially then undermine their banking sectors so this is like why it's a big like mess right now <laughs> okay this is why cash actually becomes one of the super interesting because that's the one thing that actually like nobody thinks about they're like oh well cash it's like this old school form it's like actually it's an extremely powerful and resilient form of money and actually it resolves a lot of the problems um in the sort of mainstream monetary systems so what would this you... Is, this is articulated in my book in probably like slower terms. <laughs> what, would, um, what would your solution be then to some of these problems? Should we stay with... Okay, would a temporary solution be to bring back or reinforce the position of cash uh, in society or... Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, this is what they will have to do. Right. Um, even I mean the, the the central bankers and stuff have have. Yeah. They will probably realize this, um, but it's very hard. In the bear in mind the structure of global capitalism, the. Uh, and I don't want to go too like the word like too like inhuman here but when you're studying the structure of a global capitalist system there are certain inherent trends within it towards centralization and automation and like complexity mm -hmm. you know like if you if you leave if you leave a capitalist system to run by itself 
it will like try to get more and more complex and more and more scaled up and more and more fast. Mm. All right. Um, and in this context, there's an inherent, there's an inherent like pressure in the system to get rid of non-automated forms. Now, human beings themselves don't actually necessarily like automation, but if you're stuck in a huge structure that keeps on demanding it, it's a constant tension. All right. And Marxists would probably call this the, you know, the contradictions of capitalism and these various ways you can describe this, the situation. All right. The system's constantly trying to do things which actually undermine itself mm -hmm. in various ways. Um, and when it comes to stuff like cash, cash is one of those things that sort of enabled that system to flourish for quite some time, but is now like that system's trying to like escape it in a way. All right. If you look at big tech companies, Amazon, they hate cash. They're like, this is, it stops us from expanding. It like limits us. And so they refuse to accept it. They won't have this non-automated form. Okay. Similar with all the big tech companies, they hate cash. So there's a, there's an inherent like pressure in the system to try to get rid of it, which is why cash actually becomes one of the symbols of like people who resist in a sense, that sort of feeling of inertia in a large scale capitalist system. And ironically right now, not necessarily ironically, like tellingly, you'll find it in like the sort of conspiracy theory communities and alt-right communities who often have actually often like more than left-wing communities have this, this critique of large scale institutions that they don't trust. So you'll find it in like anti-vaxxers and like um, people who are anti-masks and stuff because they've, they've got this whole like narrative around the large structures that are trying to oppress them. Okay. And in that they, they see in cash, for example, actually rightfully they see in that something that stands in the way of like Amazon. All right. And like the left wing still hasn't clocked onto this, which is partly why they're kind of, you know, losing ground often. Um, uh, you know, in the UK, for example, it's like UKIP, the nationalist crew, you know, who, who pick up on this kind of stuff, um, not the Labour Party. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I'm not sure if the Labour Party is particularly left anymore, though, to be <laughs> fair. <laughs> Actually, I did see Jeremy Corbyn, like, you know, after, after you know, he was, you know, he kind of got thrown out, like going and trying to promote cash, interestingly, along trying to get some like trade unions to get on board. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a little bit too late, you know, it's like, you, these these sort of like down to earth type structures, these, these these forms actually have deep cultural resonance to people who don't feel that large institutions represent them, mm. um, and the cosmopolitan parts of like left leaning communities often don't like see that necessarily. Um, so that's partly like in my campaign, I'm one of the few like sort of like left wing pro cash campaigners mm. in the sort of scene, as it were. So. Um Last week, I interviewed Charlie Waterhouse, who helped um, design yeah. Yeah, the second edition of the, the Brixton, Brixton Pound. Pound. And they're um, launching a, a digital version soon. And they're really, really excited about the, the potential for that. Um, how would you say that a project like the Brixton Pound could keep the, the very powerful cultural and locale roots that allow it to empower and enable the community that use it when they move into the digital sphere? Well, look, I mean, my critique of digital money is not like absolute, sure. you know, like, like it's, it's, um, 
the world is like a contradictory place. You know, like I don't want to like romanticize cash somehow. So I mean, I'm, I'm looking at like the sort of there's counterbalances and stuff. Yeah, uh, don't yeah. worry. <laughs> so, so, so like, you know, I, I'm not, for example, I wouldn't, when, I, when it comes to something like the bricks and pound, I wouldn't be saying like, oh, you guys must stay in the realm of like issuing out. <laughs> I mean, I used to be, I used to be involved in the bricks and pound actually. Um, mm. For people who don't know the bricks and pound, it's a small local currency that um, circulates in a small neighborhood of London called Brixton um, and uh, you know and so that it used to have these actual notes <laughs> that would which are actually vouchers technically speaking you know they're, they're vouchers issued out against a bank account that has British pounds in it but then it has this localized version that circulates um, uh, but you know like for, for a, a group like the bricks and pounds who's operating who's already operating on super small scale it actually could make sense to develop digital versions in order to sort of you know there's, there's nuances to this right they're they're like the digital bricks and pound is not about to become like a surveillance system sure. whereas like you know uh, <laughs> a large scale systems are so for sure i think a, a lot of the kind of like new wave digital stuff especially when it comes to like decentralized infrastructures and blockchain type stuff is actually offering new, new and interesting opportunities for small scale systems to kind of like scale up more or potentially to like federate and to create kind of like, um, uh, sort of like interlocking systems. So in the, a lot of the alternative economy movements, people who, uh, historically would try to build small scale local alternatives to things. Um, they often sort of struggle with the fact that when you create a small scale alternative, it often struggles to um, compete against the vortex of the large system. All right. Um, and so like in sort of anarchist types of thought, you often have this intuition, which is like, well, maybe we should network together all the small scale systems into mm. a kind of like network of networks. So then you imagine this kind of like efflorescence or this kind of like rhizome-like structure, which is all these like different networks put together. And that spirit you often now find, for example, in the kind of like peer-to-peer -peer culture communities and this type of stuff. It's got this, this vague intuition, which is like make some hybrid type of like shimmering, fluctuating type of network structures. And that's where a lot of the sort of like more like I guess like progressive elements of like blockchain technology types of stuff are operating. And I think Brixton Pound might be like a little, you know, micro example. As far as I know, they're trying to use Algorand mm -hmm. systems and stuff like that to do their, to do their system. But, you know, for example, um, used to working with Julio, uh, Lenares of Circles. I mean, Circles would be another example of people trying to use these digital structures to create a kind of like communitarian monetary system. What, um, for people that are working on modes of alternative economies, um, are there any about which you're particularly excited? Um, and also, generally speaking, what sort of traps about structures and functions and everything you've been talking about should they be looking at as they navigate this quite vague space? that often has a lot of good intention and a lot of heart behind it, um, mm. but maybe struggles to set up its its own infrastructure that represents that. 
So you say for, for alternative economy projects more generally or alternative money projects? Oh, yeah, shit. Um, alternative money projects. Um, I mean, look, this is quite a complex and nuanced. I could, I could talk for like two hours just on... And I'm not the only one. There's just various people who specialize in alternative you know, who have long histories of experience and these systems and, and the contradictions in them. Um, I'd say, I mean, one of the sort of main problems in uh, historically prior to crypto systems was this question of um, scale. Okay, so like like a monetary like a monetary a monetary system cannot be separated from human bodies and ecologies all right it's like like uh and you got to think about it as being like a mesh within which like human beings are like tied okay into an interdependent network now if you think about that the smaller that is the less diverse it is and the less stuff there is mm. okay if you have 10 people tied together into a network they might have a very high sense of, you know, they can see what's happening and they, and they know each other, but there's not going to be very much stuff produced with 10 people tied together, right? That's an extremely small scale network. It doesn't have very much diversity and it doesn't produce very much, okay? But it has very high autonomy potentially, okay? Now compare that, compare that to 10 million people tied together. Now suddenly each individual person in a 10 million strong network feels very small and probably quite alienated. So like in Marxist philosophy, you often have this notion of alienation. It's precisely this. It's a sense that like you're this strange small node in a huge interconnected network and you can't see what happens. And things that you produce disappear somewhere. And then the weird things appear before you and on the shelf. You don't know where it's come from. Like, like this is this whole like mentality of alienation, right? And it's inherent to large scale networks that are held together by monetary systems. The, the benefits of those systems though, is that they produce huge amounts of stuff, all right, and they have high degrees of diversity. So like things like my phone, for example, cannot exist without gigantic international interconnection of huge currency networks, right? Because there's labor from all over the world being brought together to produce that thing. Um, there's no way in hell you're ever going to produce a phone in a small-scale currency network, mm. all right? So this is like one of the inherent trade-offs it's always been around like to what extent do you want communities to like not feel alienated and to have forms of autonomy versus like to what extent you want like diverse like actual access to lots of stuff all right um i mean eurozone's a good good example of a lot of the like politics of this type of stuff right now uh there, there's a whole bunch of like and so like a lot of historical alternative currency projects have to grapple with the the reality of being part of a transnational economy all right, when you're trying to form some local system, like, is it just like performative? I'm just like, you know, I'm in Brixton and I've got this little network. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to try and act out some idea that we're autonomous, even though like all our goods come from China. Okay. And, and this is like where a lot of the sort of, you know, you can try to work with that. You can say, okay, look, look, we're going to try and form certain forms of autonomy in this local region. Perhaps we can like kickstart some industries in a small region that have been neglected by the mainstream banking sector by starting our own like, currency system here, which can be used to like kickstart. And then we can like plug back into the main 
economic system. So like once you can take specific concrete situations, you can like look at whether you think an alternative currency might help you in that situation, but it's not guaranteed. Now, the main problem that's emerged with the, 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 the advent of crypto is that crypto has got a terrible theory of money. Okay, so it's now inspired a generation of young people to get involved in like, quote unquote, alternative money, but with like an atrocious understanding of monetary systems, which means like it's sort of like unlocked a type of creativity, but it's like a largely diluted form of creativity, um, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. So, so like the, the, the main problem in crypto systems is that basically like they, they unleashed a paradigm in which you basically design a system that just like emits objects. All right. And you like digital objects mm -hmm. and you can stick like monetary branding on them or not. But in the end, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a whole group of people to take these like random digital objects and turn them into a monetary system, which is actually extremely hard to do. All right. The, the, the easiest thing to do actually in those systems is to take those digital objects, hype them up, turn them into something that becomes a good that's yeah. priced within another currency system. So it becomes actually a priced object. And then to use that to pass between yourselves, right, to sort of swap for other things that are priced in money. That's how Bitcoin works. That's how all of the systems work right now. All right. Um, but that's that falls very far short of being a monetary system. OK, although it does have forms of like things you can do with it. But the problem is, there's a whole generation of new currency developers right now who have that ideology in their head when they try and design these systems. Um, so you've got all these like insane projects that come out. I'm not insane. That's like but like really like deluded projects where they're like, OK, we'll just like emit objects, slap some monetary branding on them and then call it a money system. Mm. All right. And that's like, no, like you, and <laughs> that's just like manipulation half the time. Um, real currency design is all about designing holistic circuits that actually like work with real economies and real networks of people. Yeah. Crypto. In the rent. <laughs> no, no, no. It's very interesting because uh, crypto does seem to sort of feed into exactly the financialization of markets and essentially just create a whole bunch of niche goods for specific actions like the the one that went mad last month engine you know the, the gaming token where oh it's yeah. going to make it easier to to buy stuff in games all right okay how is that how is that a currency i mean look that, yeah that's i mean look in some ways the the the, the least destructive part of the crypto world is just the random speculation stuff. Mm. I mean, random speculation on meaningless objects has occurred for a long time in human history. Yeah, this is like nothing particularly new. I mean, people cite the tulip bulb manias and stuff yeah. that have occurred. I mean, there's many times in history where people get like frenetic and excited about random objects that they shouldn't, but it's just, you know, it happens. Okay. Um, and yes, it is, it is in the structure of like capitalist markets, you do have this especially for people who are like stuck in the lower, lower parts of those, that sort of the get rich quick mentality is very attractive. Mm. Okay. It's like, oh shit, I can escape the grind by buying some random object that everyone else is buying. And you know, this is like, I'm not really judgmental about that. That's just like, it's a thing. Okay. So when I see like some half assed like crypto token, you know, that's like, uh, this is whatever it is, you know, 
gold or something. I mean, it's like, okay, fine, you know, try to sell that. The, 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 the worst thing is when they try to masquerade as true monetary systems, right? Because the ideological consequences are far bigger than the, how, how would I say this? Um, right now, Bitcoin is one of the most powerful forces for ideological conservatism that the world has ever seen and one of the most successful at pushing that into like teenagers all right the actual monetary story that comes that accompanies that object that you can buy and sell is extremely conservative all right and never before in history have so many 17 year olds been saying things that like margaret thatcher would have said all right because it comes packaged in the marketing blurb of things like Bitcoin, all right? And that is the most destructive thing. It's, I mean, I don't really care if people want to speculate on the token and stuff. Like, fine, you can try. But like, that's less damaging than the, the message that it conveys to young people, all right? Because there's this whole conservative story, which is all about like, you've got to constrain the money supply and it's like a hard commodity. And that's basically the ideology of creditors. All right. That's the ideology of shareholders who don't want to pay their workers. Right? That's like old school right wing ideology. And it's packaged in a new form in this form of this like innovative digital thing. Right. If, if I may, um, I was reading up the other day, actually, on the whole phenomenon of like token burning um, where cryptos just delete they call it burn half of their half of the tokens or whatever in circulation in order to increase the the value and that that's quite a common tool and i was shocked like shocked that that is being used in the crypto space which i thought you know was terribly yeah. progressive and whatever because it seems like a very very kind of yeah right wing thing to do yeah, well you i mean again you got you got to make some distinctions in the crypto space like mm. because not all the tokens are masquerading as money mm. some of them are like got other things going on some of the token burning stuff, for example, might be, I mean, for example, in the, in the mainstream share world with like actual company shares, companies do share buybacks where they're like basically extracting shares out of the system. Okay. And this is, that would be in some ways a form of like uh, burning, right? Like, but there's different, um, there's, there's like, I wouldn't want to put like a single, uh, a single uh, characterization on all the different forms of crypto tokens that there are, because there are a lot of nuances in these different systems. My, my critique on Bitcoin is very specifically about the conservative monetary ideology that accompanies those tokens. Okay. Um, even though the underlying IT infrastructure or protocol of Bitcoin might be very interesting for other things, the actual monetary story is very conservative. Okay. Then there's like something like the the speculation mentality is another form of like um often like a form of delusion but that that, that as i said has got, has existed for a very long time people have often been in speculative mindsets um stuff like the token burning has its own kind of dynamics again which might which would probably very much about supporting the um boosting the profits of the people who like set up these platforms which is again another type of like um uh, there's many like frauds and shit going down in these in these systems um, but yeah, I mean, in general, the crypto scene, one, it has like, some people would argue that all the like fraud and, top, and stuff in it is, um, 
there is an argument to be said that by harnessing the sort of petty parts of human nature, it is forcing a new infrastructure into the world. So I will have friends who will say stuff like all the kind of charlatans and crypto are, you know, for all their evils, they are basically forcing a new competitor into the system. All right. Through this mechanism. And I have like some like vague sympathy for this argument because I can see like potentially the structures that are emerging through this like charlatan behavior um, might come to be useful to actual like interesting movements. Okay. So I'm prepared to accept some of, some of those, those claims. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's like one of the worst scenes in the world right now in terms of just like the sheer like BS that gets promoted. I mean, I've never seen such like crap before in some of these, some of the stuff that gets promoted. It's like outrageous. And you get fully grown adults who do it. You know, these like guys dressed in like, like rock up at these like crypto conferences and they're handing out their, handing out their like business cards or whatever. And they're like total charlatans, like literal charlatans. Some of them are like outright criminals, right? And it's like, it's considered acceptable. And so it's kind of amazing actually. And I've spent a long time around these scenes, you know, like speaking at these events and stuff. And you're like, wow, you actually for real? Like I know I used to work in the financial sector. You don't even find these types of people in the financial sector. Oh my God. Right? It's like, so it's like, it is extraordinary and it's amazing how like, so I got I got to hand it to like the crypto like charlatans in some ways. It's like being very successful at, at promoting some of these dodgy projects. Well, it's, the, you know, with the levels of like precarity that, um, you know, your average person sort of suffers now around the world. Um, I think it's very understandable that people have leapt towards something with these words, you sure, know, yeah. decentralized and technologies and anything that resembles like power to the people. Um, which, yeah. And they've, they've hijacked it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's that's, you know, what, that's one of the reasons I get quite like dark sometimes about crypto is having been involved for a long time in financial reform movements who struggle you know, you're trying to struggle to like, you know, you suddenly see that this, this revolutionary movement comes along and basically how what it does is it, is it taps into all the existing dynamics mm. of the structure and then gets caught up. You know, you've got to imagine like a, a capitalist structure is almost like a, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a hurricane or something, right? And a lot of the original alternative economy movements were trying to like fight against it. They're trying to like bed down, like, you know, trying to like pull like tents, like to create little like zones of autonomy against this huge structure. All right. That's like sucking. All right. And they often failing and their tent gets ripped off and just like disappears into nothingness. There's like a thousand like failed alternative economy projects that exist because they can't withstand the forces that they're up against. Mm. Whereas what the like crypto world's largely done, at least the sort of more charlatan parts of it, is they just take objects and they just throw it into the vortex. And then they see it getting sucked up into the vortex and they're like, oh, this is a great success, right? <laughs> We're taking over the system. It's like, you're a total charlatan. All you've done is thrown an object into a speculative market and it's gone up in price. Well, like, congratulations. The system has eaten you. You haven't eaten the system. Like, that's what's happening largely in the crypto world. Like, like the capitalist system is eating it, right? <laughs> and there are like small like zones on the outskirts of the crypto world. People trying to actually do interesting things. But largely, it's just being like ripped apart by like, um, you know, <laughs> that's like pretty like 
frustrating sometimes when you see that, albeit, as I mentioned, some people will argue that has a kind of Trojan horse element where it'll get the mainstream will incorporate it and then maybe it can then do new things. Who knows? We'll see. Are there any uh, crypto projects that you're excited about? I mean, I'm actually going away from this kind of like thing of maybe like naming crypto as the main element of projects. I'm actually more interested in, because bear in mind like blockchain technology, like you don't, like it's, 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 it's like, uh, I mean, I guess like seven years ago or something, people were like fixating upon that as the main feature of these systems. But you know, so many crap systems can be implemented using a decentralized infrastructure. So I'm often more interested in like the actual design that will be put onto such an infrastructure. Um, so if that makes sense, like, like, um, uh, so let's, let's put it this way. Like I would, I wouldn't want to just like favor a project just because it's like a progressive blockchain project. I want to favor it because it's like a progressive project. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so like, um, a lot of the things I'm looking at right now, or I'm kind of excited about, should I say, are a lot of the sort of the nascent, um, uh, and I've said this many times, like in different sort of things, but like, like these sort of like nascent credit money systems. Okay. So historically in alternative currency circles, there's a form of alternative um, currency called mutual credit. Basically, where people get together and literally actually issue each other, actually issue money, all right, um, by issuing promises. And it's a very ancient and it's a very, um, has a long, long history to it, but they've always stayed very small. What I'm most interested in is how those systems can be scaled up in some kind of way to create more horizontal credit money systems. Mm. So, right, our current monetary system is a credit money system, but it has extremely high power hierarchies within it so what's interesting about the mutual credit scene is that you could potentially create the same um uh, flexibility and dynamism that credit money has but with a lot with a, with a much more flat power structure all right so a lot of our monetary systems now are flexible and dynamic but have heavy power differentials but if you can like take that same flexibility and dynamism and make it a lot more kind of like horizontal or sort of in power, that becomes super interesting. So like there's, um, you've, you've been interviewing, for example, um, Julio, who does the, the Circles project. There are elements of Circles which, are, which is trying to do that, okay? So that, that, to create that, that type of structure. There are other projects, for example, I've often talked like, about trust lines, which again, you know, it's, a, it's still a small project trying to get going. Um, but has a lot of interesting potential in it in terms of its actual um, uh, monetary design. Okay, and a lot of these projects aren't well known yet. Uh, but in terms of like the, you know, the, the, the alternative economy movements are much broader than the alternative money movements. Yeah. Right. So like in the alternative economy stuff, you get like alternative banking, you get all sorts of stuff that's going on. Alternative ways of like. Um, structuring management structures into like um, different ownership models. So yeah, it's, it's like probably a bit too much to like go into in a single session. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Brett. This is a, uh, you left me with a, with a lot to think about. <laughs> um, no, I hope it wasn't too much. No, no, not at all. It's, it's so interesting to get into, 
how do I put this? Into the details of something that I use every day that effectively dominates my life. And yet, you know, just as a your average Joe don't know very much about. Um, so to speak with an expert is is a real treat. So th thank you. I'll just re-listen a couple of times to <laughs> to make sure yeah, I've no got worries. it all. I mean, it's a, it's a work in progress and it takes quite a long time. I mean, I don't claim to understand every aspect of these systems, but it's like, um, yeah, getting closer. Sure. Where can people find your work if they want to check you out? My most recent stuff is on um, uh, brettscott.substack.com. Uh, so it's a, it's my, I got a Substack newsletter, um, which everyone seems to be having getting right now. Uh, it's kind of been going, uh, taking off. So I started one of those last year. Um, and so that's what a lot of my, my new work is going there. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Suit Possum. So that's S-U-I-T-P-O-S-S-U-M. It's <laughs> a long story behind that. Uh, but uh, yeah, and I was just type Brett Scott. Into Google. Into, into the Google Oracle. <laughs> Finally, uh, who would you like to platform? Yeah. Um, I have a few ideas. Is there any is there any particular field that you would be interested in moving towards? I'm trying to think like what I know a lot of people, so I'm, I'm, but I'm I'm trying to think of what who who would be the most like if useful for your. Well, uh, there's a lot of stuff discussed on the podcast. Um, most of it is politicized. In fact, all of it is politicized. Obviously. Um, for me personally, the economy stuff is particularly interesting. Um, and ultimately what I just want is to make sure that there's like a through line of, of thought and ideas rather than just having random people on all the time. So I think it's really interesting to have spoken to Baruch and Ella and Julio and you to kind of, yeah, understand a little bit more, um, the, the field coming into it for an interview. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if you if you're interested in going deeper into some of the like nuances of the politics around new digital platforms and the crypto world in particular, um, I think Jaya Clara Brecker is really good to speak to. Um, I don't know if she, if she, she, I think she's been trying to like move a little bit away from some of the crypto stuff, but she's done a lot of good work on the sort of the different versions of the politics that you're starting to find emerging in some of these digital, the digital communities who see themselves quite differently from traditional sort of like left versus right wing type mm. of like political spectrums. Um, so I, I would recommend, recommend her. Um, I'm trying to think, well, do is only have one. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> anyone you'd be willing to introduce me to, really. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be cool. I mean, like, there's there's a few people in these. Um, Kia Kreutler is cool again for like um, on the the sort of like dynamics of crypto and some of the new. So sort of like the leading edge elements of that. Um, Ruth Catlow 
is on on again on like the arts the 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 the, the arts world meets the kind of like new digital economy type type world um and so i'd say those those would be new paths to go down brilliant listen thank you so much it was a pleasure to have you on the show thanks for coming thanks for having me Hello, it's me again. You can follow Brett on Twitter at SootPossum, where you'll be kept up to date with his new book launch. And as a subscriber, I would also recommend subscribing to his newsletter, Altered States of Money Consciousness, which aims to make the invisible structures that underpin the financial world visible to all. You can find the link to Altered States of Money Consciousness over at www.platformenterprise.com, where, if you're a person pissed off with capitalism, you can subscribe to this podcast and my newsletter too. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. See you next week.